This is the Serving Church Fellowship Study of Revelation 20 from October 11, 2020. Well, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and start. And in this, um, we're trying to think how to handle this because the last three chapters, 20, 21, and 22, are so critical, and a lot's going to happen in a in a confined. Uh, amount of time. By the way, for the recording, this is October 11, 2020, and uh, we're in Revelation 20. And I thought maybe the best way for us to move through the next uh, two or three chapters is to approach it like when we're going to go on vacation and see some historical sites. Uh, Often I like to read up on them before I get there, so that when I get there, I can say, oh yeah, the, I know a little bit about this, and I can I can make a mental marker in my mind, and and so I already have some some reference points. And I thought maybe we'd approach it this way. So I'm going to recap a little bit of uh, the beginning of of Revelation 20, and then spend some time. And we may not get through all of it today, but we'll spend some time on the judgments. And what I the what the approach I'm going to take both on judgments and resurrections because we're going to see a lot of both here coming up pretty quick is we'll look at all the judgments and review them not in great detail but just so that we can recognize them later that way uh, we have a frame of reference when we get to that point so instead of stopping and parking for a long time at each historical site. Uh, We're going to hit the historical sites fairly quickly, but we'll already have the background on what those judgments mean, where they are in the timeline, and the resurrections as well. So I think this will help uh, simplify a little bit and and help put in our minds the timeline of of what's going to happen in the next uh, three chapters. So as as we mentioned before in Revelation 20... um, it seems to be an extension of, of Revelation 19, a continuation of the chronology, a series of events. Uh, we, we talked uh, last week about the beginning word in chapter 20, then I saw. And the Greek for then is kai, kai, which is a conjunction meaning and or then, uh, meaning a continuation of the thought. So, Here's the end of 19 and the beginning of 20 put together. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshiped the statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword um, that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. And then right into chapter 20, verse 1. Then, after all that, I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. Remember, that's also called the abyss. And a heavy chain in his hand, he seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And afterwards, he must be released for a little while. Now, that last sentence has a little bit of mystery attached to it. It is a foreshadowing of what's to come. We don't have a lot of details here other than when the thousand years of the millennial rule end, Satan is going to be released and from the abyss, and he's going to have a short time of creating as much havoc as he can before the new heavens and the new earth are created, because at that point, he'll be thrown permanently into the lake of fire. That's about all we know about that last sentence. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Now, before we go on, um, 
again, I, I want to underscore that we're going to be looking at God's justice rolling out here, uh, which is perfect justice. Uh, there are no tricky lawyer schemes. There are no um, technicalities that people get off, uh, you know, that they get a lighter sentence. This is God's perfect justice uh, happening. He's going to deliver just judgments, punishments for those who oppose him and, and in their disobedience, Choices have consequences in eternity, and we've seen that biblically from Genesis all the way through uh, Revelation. So, when we, you know, a lot of a lot of people, when we start talking about God's judgment, say, "Well, how can a merciful God do that?" Well, because God is both merciful and just; He is both which means the disobedient and the guilty pay for their disobedience and guilt. And those who accept Christ and, and those who follow his commands and those, those who take up his command to love God with everything we have and love our neighbors as yourselves, they, they are rewarded. So here's a summation, of, and I, I like it. Uh, of God in the realm of his justice. And it's done by a theologian named Charles Hodge. Uh, he basically was active in the 19th century, the, uh, uh, the mid to late 1800s. Um, he was a leader in the Princeton School of Reformed or Calvinist uh, theology. And uh, here's his take on the nature of God in terms of justice and judging. He writes this. I'm going to get out my reading glasses because my contact, this is really tiny print. Here we go. All right, now I can read it. When we regard God as the author of our moral nature, we conceive of him as holy. When we regard him in his dealings with his rational creatures, we conceive of him as righteous. He is a righteous ruler. All his laws are holy, just, and good. In his moral government, he faithfully adheres to those laws. He is impartial and uniform in their execution. As a judge, he renders unto every man according to his works. He neither condemns the innocent nor clears the guilty. Neither does he ever punish with undue severity. Hence, the justice of God is distinguished as rectoral, or that which is concerned in the imposition of righteous laws and in their impartial execution, and distributive, or that which is manifested in the righteous distribution of rewards and punishments. So I think that that well captures the fact that God isn't God if he isn't both just and merciful, and the two do, uh, do blend together. Now, let's turn to judgments. There are several judgments, and those judgments take place at different times. So rather than get totally confused and just run across them when we do and try to figure out how they fit in the grand plan, I want to address all of them at the same time, fit them into a timeline, and then we can recognize them when they come up again. Okay, and uh, so let's review, first of all, and by the way, I'll, I'll review not only the timing of the judgments, but why they are occurring who's being judged, and what the outcomes are, all right? So this, uh, this should give us a good foundation for looking at the judgments for the rest of Revelation. So let's review the battle. I'm going to call them the battle judgments that we've seen as reported by John following Jesus' second coming uh, in, in chapters uh, 19 and 20. Number one, Jesus defeats the armies of the world that are amassed against him. Remember, as he touches down on earth for the second time, 
And these who are gathered there, many of them deceived into thinking they're battling the Antichrist, but Satan's plan is to lure everybody there thinking they'll battle the Antichrist and take over his power. He lures them there in order to battle Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus touches down, and Scripture tells us that the opposition are killed by the sharp sword that come from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And so many are dead uh, after Jesus executes, no pun intended, his judgment here. The vultures gorge themselves on all of the dead bodies. All right, so at this battle judgment, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are captured alive. They are not killed. The two are captured together and they are thrown into the lake of fire. We see that happen in, in chapter 19, verse 20. And then at the beginning of chapter 20, Satan is bound, and he's placed in solitary confinement in the abyss, or the bottomless pit, for 1,000 years, where he can't deceive anyone for that millennial period of Christ's rule. So that is what I call the battle judgments. We have the physical death of those who come out to, to try to uh, uh, annihilate the Antichrist, and then they turn to try to, to beat Jesus. We have the killing there, the judgment that they face. Then the Antichrist and the false prophet are judged. They're thrown into the lake of fire. And thirdly, Satan is temporarily bound, locked in the abyss where he can't affect anyone for a thousand years. Right now, let's proceed to the judgments upon the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. And I'll, I'll give you as best I can a, a timeline here as we put together the evidence from Scripture. We're going to look at three judgments upcoming now, three judgments of Jews and Gentiles that are going to take place in the end times. And in terms of the end times, these are going to fit into the timelines of the rapture, the second coming of Jesus, and the period after his millennial rule, but before the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so there for the, for the next few moments, those are our time frames. The rapture of the church, the second coming when Jesus comes down to earth, and that period between the millennial rule for Christ and when, he, uh, when the new heaven and the new earth are created. All right, so here we go. The rapture, that first time period, and obviously the judge here is Jesus Christ when it talks about the judge. Again, in terms of timing, this occurs at the time of the rapture, if we're a premillennial viewpoint, uh, or shortly after the rapture anyway, but it, it, it comes before Jesus arrives on earth. So it, it's between the rapture, either at or shortly after the rapture, but before the second coming of Christ. This judgment involves the believers of the church age. These are uh, those who have believed in Christ after he founded the church. They are uh, those who have died before the rapture and those who are living at the time of the rapture. So it would be our, our Christian forefathers. Uh, it would be all those New Testament believers who have died all the way through now. And if, if we die before the, the rapture, we would be included in this, as will those who are living at the time of the rapture. No unsaved people are involved here. No Old Testament saints are involved here. This is strictly uh, a judgment of New Testament believers who have died and are on earth living at the time of the rapture. And it is called the judgment seat of Christ, or some people call it the Bema. There's no punishment here. It's like the, uh, the Bema seat, and Lori and I saw this when, when we were traveling in, in Greece and, and Turkey. In an athletic competition and in a, a, a court area, 
um, especially for athletic competition, there will be rewards or losses of rewards. It doesn't have to do with salvation here. It is only rewards or losses of rewards, like an athletic competition where they, they come before the judge of the athletic competition and the judge is going to hand out rewards to those who won or not hand out, hand out rewards to those uh, who didn't place. Scripturally, it's addressed by this passage in 2 Corinthians 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. We will be judged according to God's word, scripture, in terms of our understanding and our application of it. We're, we're going to be judged, according to this verse here, according to how we use or how we don't use the gifts that we have been given by the Holy Spirit. So it's a case of a, a, an evaluation. Maybe that would be a better word for us to think about, an evaluation of our stewardship of the resources and skills God has given us. And we're going to be assessed in terms of what are the outcomes? What did we do with the resources and the giftings that God gave us? We're going to turn now to 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, and this is a good description of what's happening here. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. I don't know about you, but that's a sobering, as I was reviewing all of this, and you know, I, I often think, of people's questions about or their answers to why they don't want to study revelation it, it has occurred to me more and more moving through the past couple of weeks of study one of the main reason well one of the most compelling reasons for us to study revelation is to start to really understand that what we're doing right now with the resources that God has given us individually is going to have eternal consequences. Do we just want to be saved and just get in by the skin of our nose? Or do we want to make the best of what God has provided us, do our best in answering his call to love God with everything we have and love our neighbors as ourselves? And for all eternity... What we do, what the, God, the, the assignments God gives us and the, the crowns or the rewards that he gives us, all of that depends on what we're doing right now. And that's sobering when you think that when we get to eternity, we can't gain any more or lose any more. It is what it is when we get there forever and ever and ever. And I don't know about you, I don't want to miss out on the best that God has for me. And so, it, to me, it's a sobering thought, and it causes me to think, am I doing the best and the fullest that I can do with the skills and the spiritual gifts and the resources that, that God has given me? And it's a question I think that each of us has to, to think about. But as we move through Revelation, it just becomes more and more um, apparent that we need to be thinking about that because once we get there, it's done. What we've done is done. And for eternity, our rewards or losses of rewards depend on what we're doing now. I don't know about you, but that's pretty sobering to me. All right. And by the way, if you want to jump in with any questions, please do so. I know we're, I'm 
trying to move as quickly as possible, but without being superficial. All right, so we've looked at um, the judgments now at the rapture. Now, the judgments that occur at the second coming of Jesus Christ, that's when he touches down on earth at the end of the tribulation period. And he's going to be judging the Gentiles who came to Christ during the tribulation, the living Gentiles. This is described in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And the sheep are the Gentiles who legitimately came to Christ during the tribulation. They made it through the tribulation and they sacrificed and they sacrificed to take care and they, uh, of the Jews who were amongst them during the tribulation period, the Jews who were greatly suffering during the tribulation, uh, speaking of those who chose not to receive the mark of the beast, but chose to be followers of Christ. These Jews, as we have seen, were heavily persecuted. So the sheep in Matthew 25 are the Gentiles who loved their Jewish neighbors as themselves. The goats are the Gentiles who were hypocrites, who pretended to have faith in Christ or gave it lip service, but they ignored, either intentionally or unintentionally, the needs of the Jews who were under persecution. So there is a judgment of punishment here. The goats, those who are hypocrites, those who really didn't follow Christ but claim to, they are going to be eternally removed from God's presence. And they, they, these are Jesus' own words here in Matthew 25. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? In other words, the attitude of the goats is, I don't remember that. When, when did we... You know, you must be mistaken. We, we didn't see any of that. And Jesus is going to answer in verse 45, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Now, when he's talking, when Jesus is talking about his brothers and sisters, he's calling about talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters in the tribulation period. Verse 46, these goats who refuse to help these Jews will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now, Charles Riley, uh, Charles Ryrie, uh, rather, makes this observation in his book on basic theology. And if you have a library of theological books, I highly recommend Charles Ryrie and his book on basic theology. He really makes it uh, very down-to-earth. I don't want to say simple, because systematic theology is never simple, uh, but he brings it down to a level where it's really understandable in plain language. I highly re uh, recommend that book. Been around for a long time. Anyway, he says, for a Gentile to treat any Jewish person with kindness during the tribulation will place that Gentile's life in jeopardy. No one will do this merely out of a beneficent attitude, but only out of a redeemed heart. Those whose good deeds prove the presence of saving faith will enter the kingdom. So in other words, he's saying, the Gentiles of the tribulation period as the ones that are helping out the Jews are not doing it because, gee, that would be a wonderful thing to do this beautiful Saturday morning. I have nothing else to do. I'm going to go help a Jew. No. During the tribulation period, helping a Jew puts you at tremendous risk. You are reviled. It may even uh, put you in danger of being put to death, but certainly to be persecuted. So, uh, it, it is not an act of just being um, altruistic. It's an act of being redeemed, being a sold-out follower of Christ, and knowing that part of your calling is to help uh, your brothers and sisters who are, 
who are Jews. So that's his point there. So these Gentiles, by the way, very interesting. These Gentiles who are still alive at the time of this judgment apparently are going to keep their earthly bodies. They haven't died yet. They're going to keep their earthly bodies and they're going to enter the millennial rule of Christ with their present earthly bodies. And we'll unpack that a little bit, bit uh, uh, later on. All right, so that's the judgment of the Gentiles at the second coming. Now, the judgment of the living Jews at the second coming, which is at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus arrives back on earth. He defeats these armies who are massed against him. Remember, he's got that long spear, and, and he, he casts judgment on all of them who oppose him, and he, he kills them all. And the vultures now are, are picking apart the, the dead bodies. Now, at this point, the Lord gathers all the Jews of the world to the land of Israel. Every Jew in all creation that's alive is going to come to the land of Israel. The righteous Jews, those who came to believe in Christ the Messiah, are going to continue with their Gentile counterparts to populate the earth during Christ's millennial rule. So both the Gentile believers who are alive and these Jews, uh, living Jews who have accepted Christ, will together populate the earth during Jesus's 1,000-year rule. And during that time, Jesus is going to fulfill the Father's covenants with the Jews and the nation of Israel. No covenant will, will go un, undone. Now, the unsaved Jews, what about them? The unsaved Jews who rebelled against God will not be allowed into the kingdom of God, and they will not participate in the millennial rule. All right, now what about, so we've done, done the Gentiles, done the saved Jews, the living Jews. Now what about the Old Testament saints who have died, and the saints who died during the tribulation? So we've got two groups here we haven't talked about yet. The Old Testament saints, including the prophets, all those who followed God, and then the saints who died during the tribulation, those who accepted Christ and, and were probably martyred and, and executed. We will see these saints judged for rewards or losses of rewards immediately after the tribulation ends, but before Christ begins the millennial rule. There is some space there. And we're going to talk about that timing as best we, we know it probably next week. But there's a little space in time. Stuff's going to happen. Satan's going to be let out of the abyss. And uh, the, the Old Testament saints and the saints who died during the tribulation are going to be part of this judgment. Or you might even uh, use the word uh, assessment here. Uh, there are no unbelievers at this judgment of the saints and this Old Testament saints and the saints who died during tribulation. No one believers here at all. They're going to be judged later. Okay. Now, what about these judgments that happen after the millennial kingdom? There's a little space there between of time between the end of the millennial rule, Jesus's 1,000 year rule on earth, and the new heavens and the new earth. The first judgment will be upon Satan and his fallen angels. At the end of the millennial kingdom, so we've gone through the tribulation, Jesus comes back, he defeats the armies, he judges uh, those judgments we've talked about of the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the believers. And at the end of those 1,000 years, Satan is going to be released from the abyss for a very short time for his last hurrah of attempting to spread evil and chaos. Then, after whatever that space of time is, comes their judgment. Satan and his demonic angels will be judged for their rebellion and sin, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. 
Now, remember, who's already in the lake of fire? The Antichrist and the false prophet. So all four, uh, well, not four, the three of them, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and now Satan are thrown into this, the lake of fire, plus all of Satan's minions or his, his fallen angels will join him in that lake of fire. All right, now the next judgment is upon the earth itself. Sometimes some people forget that the earth itself was cursed at the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden. It was not just man who was cursed, but the creation itself was cursed. First P or second Peter rather, second Peter 3:10. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. Now, when we talk about the heavens, remember when we talked about the Apostle Paul in that period right after the, uh, his experience with Christ on the road to Damascus? I remember he's in uh, Arabia for about three years, and during that time, he is taken up to the third heaven. So we have first, second, and third heaven. What is the first heaven? The first heaven is where we are right now. We look up and we see our atmosphere, where the clouds are, etc. Uh, that's, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is what we call space. Where the stars and the moon and the sun and all of that is. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is the heaven of God's residence. There is no sin that affected that heaven. So that heaven is not going to be destroyed, but the first and the second heavens will be destroyed and they're going to be recreated. Does that make sense? Okay, so when he's saying he will set the heavens, plural, on fire, we're talking about the first and second heavens that we can observe with our naked eye and that we can see uh, through the microscope or through the uh, telescope. Could, could you just kind of repeat that about the first and first to the third heavens? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. The first heaven is what we, I, I, I would call our, our atmosphere. It's the air we breathe. Uh, it's the clouds that we can see. That's the first, as we look up and there is the air above us and the clouds above us. That's our atmosphere. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is beyond that. We call it now, we call it space. The sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is the residence of God. So the earth the first heaven and the second heaven are all falling under the curse of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, not only were they cursed, but the earth and the first and second heaven were cursed as well. So when verse 12, or I'm sorry, verse 13 of 1 Peter 3.10 to 13 says, but we are looking forward to the new heavens, plural, and new earth, singular. He has promised the world uh, will be filled with God's righteousness. So it's that our atmosphere and what's beyond where, where we send spacecraft, that, that is the first and second heaven. 
our atmosphere, and then space beyond that are going to be destroyed. Earth as, Earth as we know it is going to be destroyed because it's infused with sin. It has been, in, it has been cursed along with man from the time of the Garden of Eden, as have the first and second heavens. The third heaven is not because that's where God is and there is no sin there. It's holy. So anything that was affected by the fall in the Garden of Eden is going to be destroyed. Does that help, Janetta? Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Good, good question for clarification. Thank right. you, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Please. Please stop me. Don't don't let me keep going if 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 I lose you somewhere. This is this is too critical. All right. So there's the judgment upon the earth and 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 the first and second heaven there. Now comes the judgment of the unsaved, the unbelievers. And this is called the great white throne judgment. Again, this comes, remember where our time frame is now. The tribulation has ended. Jesus Christ has come back. He's defeated the armies. And uh, now we're looking at uh, these, um, uh, these judgments uh, of, uh, that occur after the 1,000-year rule of Christ, the judgment of Satan and his fallen angels, the judgment of the earth and the first and second heaven, and now comes the judgment of the unsaved, of the unbelievers. Uh, you have probably heard it called the great white throne judgment. And uh, we'll see that in chapter 20 here in verses 11 to 15. This is the judgment of all non-believers from all of human history. All unbelievers from all of human history. I'm going to go back and quote Charles Ryrie again from Basic Theology, his book. The book of life, which will be opened at the great white throne judgment, will not contain the name of anyone who will be in that judgment. The books of works, which will also be opened will prove that all who are being judged deserve eternal condemnation and may be used to determine the degrees of punishment. So in other words, God has these books of life, correct? None of the people at this judgment are going to have their names in the book of life. Now, God knows literally whose names are in there but it's an affirmation for us to know that these books are in front of God and these people's names are not written in those books. All right, let's look at the passage here in, in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. And I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but it fits into our chronology. And I saw a great white throne. That's why we call it the great white throne judgment and the one sitting in it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so that's that final judgment there of, of those who are non-believers. So the non-believers and those who oppose God, they are the final ones to be judged in our timeline of judgments. Okay? Any questions up to that point? Yes, 
I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I, I hope it's making some sense. Now, Mike, is this after the thousand years? Yes. Yes, it is between. It is between the end of the thousand-year rule and the appearance, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. There, there's okay, a space so there. That all is not. That in, I'm yeah, sorry. Go all ahead. Those that are in, if if you're not in the book, uh, you're heading for a, a toasty environment, right? Yes, and and we'll. I want to get too heavy into that. We'll, we'll we'll address that later. But yes, there will be eternal separation from God. Yes, absolutely. All right. All right. So now, with that background, let's go back now to verse 4, which is where we left off last week in Revelation 20. And we're going to see these judgments come to pass before Christ ish ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's um, let's take a look at some of the timings of these judgments. There's a judgment, as we have noted, of the Gentiles that dis that's described in Matthew 25. 31 to 46 that occurs at the end of the tribulation period after Christ returns, but before the millennial rule. And I want to go over this again because there are some important dynamics here that I don't think are often taught. So bear with me. Let's, let's look at this Matthew 25, 31 to 46. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. These are all Gentiles. These are the Gentiles of the tribulation period. Verse 34, there are no Jews here in this scene that we see about the sheep. and the, These are Gentiles. Then the king will say to those on his right, meaning the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then these righteous Gentiles, and notice the humility here. It's almost like, oh, man, I don't, did, did we do that? Maybe we missed it. And I, I, and I think they're reacting in, in a little bit of shock. And, and they're thinking back and they're saying, okay, uh, the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? I mean, they're questioning now. And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ? They are the Jews of the tribulation period. So this is not us? Not yes. unless we wind up going through the tribulation period. Okay. So if these... we go through the tribulation, we would be part of the sheep that's correct this okay. judgment in matthew 25 is at the end of the tribulation period and it the sheep and the goats refers only to the gentiles of that tribulation period 
of the tribulation. Okay. And what but, they're being judged on is how they treated or ignored the plight of the Jews who were being persecuted during the tribulation period. Okay. Okay. So this is where love your neighbor as yourself gets down to not a matter of convenience, but a matter of righteousness and saying to God, I am going to risk my life and sacrifice in order to help my fellow Jewish brother Jew who's Jew, who's a Jew. Okay. Okay. It, it's applicable to all of us, isn't it, Mike? No. I mean, it's relevant this, to this. Just the well, Jewish? The, the principle is relevant, yes. Okay. The, the exact judgment, though, is not applying to us. It's applying to the Gentiles of the tribulation period. But okay. you are correct in terms of the principle is, is right. In other words... <laughs> yeah, in other words... Um, I don't want to jump ahead here, but at, 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 at the, at the wedding feast, you know, between Christ, the groom and the bride, his church. Yes. We hear the story of, of the man, uh, uh, of the Jews who, um, were invited to the banquet table and they basically refused God's invitation uh, and that's in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And remember, uh, so none of the, the Jews rejected um, God the Father's invitation to come to the banquet of the marriage of his son, Jesus Christ, to the church. And so then he tells his servants, well, go out, find any Gentile that you can find out there and bring him in. Good, bad, or indifferent, bring him in. And part of the Eastern tradition was you wore a garment that the father who was putting on the wedding gives to you. It was a matter of respecting the father and, and the groom. And what happens is uh, these Gentiles who accept Christ accept the garment. And if you want to be figurative there, the garment can represent loving your neighbors as yourself, the deeds we do in the name of Christ, okay? So this one guy shows up without the wedding garment that was offered to him, which in the ancient Near Eastern culture was considered a grave insult, a grave disrespect to the father who's putting on the banquet. And so the, uh, the father in this case, who's, who's God, uh, tells his servants, to take that guy away and send him to eternal punishment. That guy represents the hypocrites who claim to be followers of Christ, but do absolutely nothing in their lives in the name of Christ. They do, they do not love God with everything they have. They do not love their neighbors as themselves. In the time of the tribulation period, those Gentiles are the ones who I don't want to get in trouble, and so I'm not going to go help that Jew. Uh, these are the Gentiles that are being judged as, as goats here. Any questions there? So do you think that this, I know you don't feel like you're in the tribulation yet, but would this apply to us if we don't, if we're not um, taken pre-trib and we're we're going through the tribulation um would it be behooving upon us knowing scripture to really reach out to our fellowish fellow jewish um persons and and help them as they are um i don't know what's going to happen in this country um we see what's going on in new york right now but i mean is that part of what our responsibility would be if we are left during the at, tribulation at this point well you're, you're mixing two time frames let me take them separately if you're talking about right now and my belief is we have not entered the tribulation period yet it's not just the jews we need to help it's everybody 
love your neighbor as yourself. In the tribulation period, it's the Jews that are the focus here because basically we're at the end of the story and there is one last opportunity for people to come to Christ and they're being persecuted and we're getting close to the point now where, where God is going to fulfill his covenants to the Jews, uh, to the nation of Israel. And so Israel becomes a focus here during the tribulation period. And that's why we have this intense focus uh, on, on the Jews, on the Gentiles helping the Jews. And Jesus saying, when you did it to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Okay. So, you know, the, if it, the literal thing in the tribulation period is it's literally the Jews of the tribulation period that are being persecuted in a figurative sense for us as a principle, it's, we need to help people who need help because that's what Jesus has commanded us to do. Love God with everything you have, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Right. So right. you and have I a think double so application. My... Yeah. Go I, ahead, Lee. I think those are two of the most meaningful in the Bible to me. Yes. yes. Pastor? Yes. I, I have to go. So could I get a copy of the recording? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna post this one anyway, Janetta, because uh well there's just too much stuff here yeah um in fact well let, let me ask you what what you all and i know you have to leave janetta and, and so thank you um the next part of this is to look at the judgment of the Jews of the nation of Israel who are living at the end of the tribulation period. And it corresponds with Ezekiel 20. So it corresponds with what? Ezekiel 20 okay. verses 30 to 38. And I'm just wondering if we want to tackle that now uh, or, or wait. Uh, because we're also going to get into um, the issues of, of the resurrections. Yeah, that sounds like it might be good to. Yeah, let me let me stop next here. Time. Yeah, let me stop here because the I I, I I've given you a lot. <laughs> today and and i i want i want not to rush it so fast that that you miss anything so i think let, let's stop there for today and then next week we'll begin with um uh, the judgment of of the nation of israel of the individual jews as described in ezekiel 20 30 to 38 and then i will also tie that into where this fits in to revelation right now <laughs>